Uh, we started last week chapter four of our confession, just every week just reading a paragraph. And um, I'm going to be an overachiever this morning and read two paragraphs to you uh, because there's something that I wanted to note. And so I'm going to go back to paragraph one and I'll read through paragraph two of our confession. And so chapter four, it, it be, we begin to uh, deal with creation, okay? And so chapter four, paragraph one, in the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. And the reason I wanted to read that again is because um, not only do we have a confession of faith that is, is summarizing Scripture, but it's also teaching us how to interpret Scripture as well. And we have, uh, in the beginning, there is an assumption here based on the whole counsel of God's Word that's taken into consideration that it is uh, the Trinity the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that created the world. And so that, that's why in our confession we see a Trinitarian um, declaration in the act of creation. And so I just wanted to note that for us as well. But then paragraph two, our paragraph this morning, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts in power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. And so that is paragraph two of confession one. And so just as we're reading it together. I just want to, I want to continue to put forward this kind of interpretive um, act of the, the, the people that put this together, but the interpretation in regards to taking into consideration the whole counsel of God's Word when formulating particular doctrines that are evident in Scripture. And so, so that is paragraph 1 and 2 of chapter 4 of the Confession. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Uh, to the Gospel of Mark. We are finishing this morning chapter 3. We're looking at the same passage that we began to look at last week, verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 19b through uh, verse 35. And um, in this morning, um, we're going to look at some aspects of this passage that just for time's sake last week I had to, uh, I had to neglect. And so I'm just, uh, I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to read this passage, pray, and then give a little bit of a reminder about what we covered uh, last week and begin to look at this passage together again this morning. And so uh, the second part of verse 19 through verse 35, John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he wrote these words. He says, and they... <clears throat> went into a house. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. 
So he called them to himself and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Some of your translations may say is guilty of an eternal sin because, they said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother and my, or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and he said, Here are my, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my mother and my sister and my brother and my sister and my mother. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for allowing us to gather around your word. God, we ask that you would help us to see it clearly by your spirit. Lord, that you would exalt Christ to us in your word by your spirit. And Lord, that we would be encouraged and strengthened as a result of having spent time together this morning. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen. So, like I said, this is week two of us looking at uh, this particular passage of Scripture. And just by way of reminder, there's a couple of things that I want us to focus on that I had to neglect last week or or didn't get to spend as much time last week on it as I wanted to. And it's Jesus' statement, if you're looking at, at, at the text with me, it's his statement in verses 33 to 34 regarding him saying, who is my mother, who is you know, my brothers. And the second thing I want us to focus on uh, is, is what has become known as the, the unforgivable sin, if you've ever heard of that. And, and we see that particularly in verses 28 to 30, and it's summarized by the phrase eternal condemnation, or again, some, some of translations say eternal sin, and it relates to blaspheming uh, the Holy Spirit of God. Now, remember the context uh, of this particular passage. We're at Peter's house again, okay, and Jesus is being sought out by this great multitude of people, and it's ever increasing at this stage in the life and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the multitude so great that they can't get into Peter's house. The multitude so great that Jesus and his apostles, his disciples, they can't even find a, a place to eat at. And you have in this passage, you see this sort of uh, growing concern from Jesus's family that perhaps Jesus isn't taking care of himself uh, or perhaps Jesus isn't thinking clearly. And so Jesus's mother and his brothers, they come to intervene in his life. And if successful, 
it would have been an interruption in the messianic work of Jesus Christ. In the same vein, and we looked at this last week, as Peter, upon hearing uh, Christ speaking about being arrested and condemned to death and resurrecting, when Peter says, let that never be, Lord, and Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. And, And think about it for a moment. If Mary and the brothers of Christ, if they were concerned about Jesus not perhaps resting or eating according to the way that they thought he should be resting and eating, how much more distressed would they be as, as they came into a greater understanding of him uh, coming to die, not just die, but the type of death, Jesus dying the type of death that was reserved at this stage in Roman history for the worst of criminals, right? What Jesus came to do is prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 15. 53, and it, it's what makes Christmas Christmas, right? Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 7 says this, he, again, prophetically speaking about Jesus, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as if we, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, right on Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Right, that, that's the messianic work of Jesus Christ. This is why Christ became man. This is why we say Merry Christmas. Right? And, and he wasn't going to be distracted on this most important plan this plan to redeem a people to himself, right? So if they were worried about him not resting and eating, right, this is, this is the ministry objective that he would not be side, you know, he wouldn't be sidelined. He would come, he would accomplish, and we know he did come, he did accomplish. Now, as we've seen, there's another group here as well, right? We, we see the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and, and they having observed everything that Jesus was doing, right? Healing the sick, uh, performing exorcisms, pronouncing the forgiveness of sins, they concluded that Jesus was possessed by the devil or perhaps was the devil or empowered by the, quote, prince or ruler of the demons, right? That, That was their conclusion. And in response, Jesus gives this parable that we spent time on last week. And the purpose of that parable demonstrated not only that Jesus came to bind Satan, but that his very binding of Satan proves that he isn't possessed or empowered by Satan. Okay. It, 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 Satan, he wouldn't bind himself, right? Satan wouldn't limit himself. Satan wouldn't work against himself. Satan wouldn't promote light in darkness. Furthermore, Satan's not a miracle worker, right? The miracles of Jesus are evident by this time, and Satan isn't 
a miracle worker. He's a creature, right? Only our triune God can produce miracles. Satan's so-called miracles are actually lies. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and get this, lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So we see in that text, right, that phrase, lying wonders, right? In other words, deceptive miracles or false miracles with the intent to deceive, right? Satan's works are meant to deceive so that we would stay in our particular fallen state, Right, that, that we would stay collectively as children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, so that we wouldn't receive the love of the truth that we might be saved, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. So the conclusion of the, the religious leaders, it's wrong, and it's not just wrong, but as we'll see, it's coming really close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, so, so with this context in front of us again this morning, let me get us into our, our text some more here. And I'm going to start with this issue of Jesus' mother and, and brothers first. So look back with me. Again, just open Bibles in front of you, verses 31 to 35. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother and my sister and or my, my brother, my sister and my mother. So last week we, we connected <clears throat> that that family that Mark has in view in verse 25, that thinks Jesus is, quote, out of his mind, okay, is the same family at the end of the chapter right here that's waiting for Jesus, okay? Now, it's probably safe to assume that Joseph, Jesus' um, uh, dad in his, in his incarnation, in his humanity, uh, that, that Joseph had died by this time, by just the sheer fact that he's left out here, right? It's Mary and Jesus' brothers that come, Okay, and notice in our text that they are on the outside of Peter's house. Okay, they're on the outside of Peter's house, Jesus' own family. Right? They're on the outside, right? They, they can't get into his house, so they send word, or perhaps they're noticed by some of the people in the multitude, and there's this chain reaction. I'd imagine in my, my mind's eye of these whispers that eventually make their way to Christ, right? But they send word through the multitude that they're outside. And it's clear just from the context of our passage that they're seeking Jesus, not as Lord and not as God, but as a son and as a brother, right? One who needs help. Again, one who is, quote, out of his mind. And again, they're, they're seeking to interrupt the messianic work of Christ, even though that's not their intention, Right, there's no malicious intent here. And so in response to this, Jesus uses this 
attempted intervention is an opportunity to teach something further about the nature of the kingdom of God. And he, t- and he does this by teaching us something about the nature of our union with him. Okay, our union with him. He speaks of a relationship that's even more intimate than a flesh and blood relationship, right? A, a relationship that's made possible by him, only by him, right? And, and, and in doing so, what we hopefully see here, even though this passage may strike us strangely as we read it, but contextually speaking, it wouldn't be right for us to conclude that Jesus is disrespecting his mother or his brothers, right? He honors Mary. He honored Joseph. Right? He, so he's not, he's not being disrespectful here. He's not, he's not even, I wouldn't even say he's being punchy here, but he's teaching us about the, the makeup of his eternal family. It's what we see him getting at. Hey, the kingdom of God is full of mothers and brothers and sisters who share a familial relationship, not because they're blood relatives, but because of their position in Christ Jesus, because of their union with Christ Jesus. Right, kids, two weeks ago, right, you saw two kids get baptized, right? One of the people that got baptized was Abel, and one of the people that got baptized was my son, Henry, right? And Abel's brother is Eli, and Henry's brothers are Owen and Ames. Now, what Abel and Henry did two weeks ago was they identified as our spiritual brothers in Jesus, in the the New Covenant, New Testament sign, if you will, of family membership is baptism. So, so not only is Henry my son, but in Jesus, he's my spiritual brother. And not only is Abel uh, the son of Mr. Jeff and Miss Audrey, but in Jesus, he's their brother as well. And, and that's the most important of all relationships. That's the most important of all relationships. It's a relationship that doesn't have an end. It never stops because it's sealed by the Holy Spirit of God and it's grounded in the finished work of Jesus through his death on the cross and his bodily resurrection. And so it's here that, that I, I, want us, I want us to see that, that sort of the, the significance of, of, of having that sort of family connection. Again, not, not, not because we're, we're related but because Jesus came and he sought us and he saved us and he is building a spiritual family that never ends, that always exists. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want us to see the hope in that. And I'll spend some more time on on this in just a minute. But I also want us to see a caution in the words of Jesus. And here, here's, if you're jotting down notes, and this is in your bulletin, you can take this down, or kids, you can put this in the fill in the, in the, fill in the blank. But those who think they're close to God should take heed, and those who think they are too far gone should have hope. Those who think that they're close to God should take heed, they should see a caution here this morning, and those who think they're too far gone should, 
should be encouraged this morning. And let's start with the caution first. Okay, remember, Jesus' very own family is on the outside. Okay, his disciples and the apostles are on the inside. The religious experts in this passage who think that they're close to God are saying that Jesus has a demon this passage. And, And we'll revisit that more in a moment while Christ's disciples and his apostles, again, are confessing him as the long-awaited-for Messiah. Right? And we're reminded in our text this morning that it isn't our knowledge that makes us close to God. Right? It, it isn't our status that makes us close to God. It isn't our achievements that make us close to God. It isn't our ability to make it look like we have it all together on the outside, that we're moral people, right? Our our closeness to God isn't based on any of that. It's not based on any of that. Furthermore, our closeness to God, our being right with God, isn't because we have a family connection with another Christian, Okay, we, we aren't Christians because our moms and dads or grandparents are Christians in the same way that Mary and the brothers of Jesus aren't admitted into the kingdom of God just because of their blood relation to Jesus in his humanity. Now, we know that Jesus's family came to, at some point, confess him as the Messiah, right? But it's repentance in faith in Christ alone that brought them into Jesus's spiritual family. They weren't born in flesh in the spiritual family of Jesus. They had sin that had to be dealt with the same way that we have sin that has to be dealt with. Right now, certainly we should acknowledge that it's better for one to grow up, infinitely better for one to grow up in a Christian home. First Corinthians chapter 7 verse 14 teaches us as much. And we should raise our children covenantally. We should raise them in, in such a way that the only natural thing for them to do is confess Christ. But we have to remember that each one of us must be personally saved. We have to be personally saved. We must personally repent of our sin. We must personally trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. We can't trust our family members. We can't trust our accomplishments. One day, every single one of us is going to stand before God when Jesus returns. And we will be judged we will be judged. We're either going to be judged by our biographies or we're going to be judged by the biography of Jesus. Right, going back, we looked at Revelation 20 briefly last week, returning there for just a moment. Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 to 15 speaks of that great day of judgment. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books, plural, books, were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books, right? their biographies. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death. That's a terrifying day. That is a terrifying day that we're all moving toward, that will come. Verse 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into that lake of fire. Right? If, if we stand before God and we are judged by our own biographies, right? a, bi- a biography that may say, well, my parents were Christians. Or it may say, man, I, you know, God, I went, to, I went to seminary. Or it may say I, was, I wasn't as bad as other people. Or it may say, hey, I was generous in my life. I was a very gracious, generous, kind person in life. None of that measures up. None of that measures up to God's glorious, fixed standard grounded in his glorious, fixed character. And the prophet Isaiah, he prophesies, about what even on our best day, what that looks like before a holy God. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Even on our best days, that is where we are. Independent of Christ Jesus, that is where we are. So we don't want to be judged based on our biographies, right? We want to be judged based solely upon the biography of Christ, his person and his work. So if you think you're close to God because of a family connection, right? If you think that you are morally a righteous person and you're deserving of the grace of God, there is a caution here that we see this morning. The religious leaders were not right with God. And at this stage in the game, Mary and Jesus' brothers thought that Jesus was mad. They were collectively on the outside. They were on the outside. But also in here, be comforted this morning. Be comforted in this morning. Right, if you're looking at your life, if you're looking at your, your past, right, or, or, or maybe even your present situation, right, your present sins, and you think... You think to yourself, I must be on the outside. You think to yourself, There's, there is no way that I can come close to Christ. Hear me well. Christ died for you. Christ died for you. And you may reply, you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. Right? He died for you, and his resurrection proves that you've been acquitted of your sins. You've been acquitted of your sins. He died to adopt you into his spiritual family. Right? And his blood is sufficient. It's eternally sufficient to cover your sin. So you can come this morning. You can be on the inside this morning. You can be near Christ. Right? Those in Peter's house we're wretched sinners like me and like you. And he invites you to himself. He invites you to himself in repentance and faith. Right? And if you're a believer this morning, and I'm going to talk about this more in just a few minutes, if you're wrestling with your assurance of faith, you can rest in that glorious reality as well. It's grace that saved you, yes, but it's also grace that keeps you now. 
right? It's not, I was saved by grace and now I preserve by my works. That isn't the gospel. The gospel is you're saved by grace and you persevere by grace, right? You're just sinking further and further and further into the depths of God's grace. And that is glorious. And you can rest in that this morning. You can rest in that this morning. This leads us well into the, our second point. Right? The, the two things that we're looking at, I think they pair well together in God's providence. But we can be comforted and fixed by this reality. Second, no sin is unforgivable for those who turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. No sin is unforgivable for those who turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. Now, it's going to take me a minute to, to show you point two, but, <clears throat> but stay with me. Look back at our passage again this morning, verses 28 to 30. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Again, an eternal sin, some translations say. And, and the reason why Jesus says this is answered for us right in Mark's gospel because the religious leader said Jesus has an unclean spirit. Right? That's verse 30 there. Right? I, I read this passage of scripture when I was around eight years old, and I can't even begin to capture for you uh, the anxiety that followed from my reading of this passage as an eight-year-old. Uh, loads of anxiety. And at the time, I was an RA, uh, which shows you how long I've been in Southern Baptist life. Um, if you are even familiar with what I'm saying, it was uh, uh, called Royal Ambassadors. And my dad was the guy who ran the Royal Ambassadors, and my mom did the GAs. And I don't even know what GAs, Girl Ambassadors, I don't know what GA stood for. I cannot remember. Uh, what? Girls in Action. Thank you, Josh. The other stuff. The, um, and so RAs and GAs, and I remember being obsessed with this passage and, and obsessed with whether or not I had committed as an eight-year-old the unforgivable sin. And, and my dad would assure me when I would ask him, uh, he would assure me that I hadn't committed the unforgivable sin. But the passage, it haunted me for a while because I think it was one that the enemy would use to keep me in this perpetual state of worry um, and, and, and increase anxiety and manipulate me and manipulate my emotions. And I remember even going off to college and watching this atheist group in, in college film videos of themselves doing what they called uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Uh, they, they were trying um, in, in this very just unsettling manner to damn their own souls uh, to hell and, and pretending all the while that that didn't bother them because they rejected the scripture anyways. But I couldn't, I couldn't help but wonder why are they so obsessed about this the very thing that they claimed wasn't real, and could it be perhaps because uh, it's written on their hearts that it is real, right? Uh, but this passage, I think, has been one that folks have wrestled with for a long time, and perhaps you have as well experienced some anxiety uh, because of it. Now, we see that phrase in our text, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, right? And it would be good to have a, a, uh, a working definition for blasphemy in, in general, right? And, to, and so if you, you want to, you're more than welcome to jot this down, but to, to blaspheme is, is, is to slander. It's to, to knowingly assert things that aren't true with, an, with the intent, uh, a malicious intent, okay? It, it means to revile, 
Okay, it means to speak abusively. And, and when you take that into account and you, you consider that, you can see more clearly that, uh, especially in our context, that it, it, it's to speak intentionally the opposite of what is true for, for, again, this malicious purpose and that the Holy Spirit is the person in view here. So, so to speak against the Holy Spirit, okay, to speak abusively and untruthfully regarding the Holy Spirit is what is in, in view in this passage. And under the old covenant, okay, in, in civil law and the theocracy of Israel, there were these blasphemy laws that dealt with blasphemers, okay? There were these blasphemy laws that dealt with blasphemers, those who would trespass, those who would profane the name of the Lord. They were given, again, under the nation of Israel, the theocracy of Israel, in the civil law of Israel, they were given the death penalty by stoning, Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 to 23. This isn't some trivial, small issue here. Now, in our day and age, blasphemy and blasphemy laws are distorted. They're distorted and they're twisted. And it's not because we don't have blasphemy laws. We have them. It's just that we have blasphemy laws here in Western society that require the opposite of what I just laid out. We have blasphemy laws that punish truth-telling in Western society. We have blasphemy laws that require at worst or celebrate at best lying, right? Just to give you an example of this, this is why you can face losing your job or your social credit if you don't use preferred pronouns, right? This is why there's a cost to one's political career in the United States if you don't get on board with redefining a sacred God-ordained institution like marriage, now, this is why our society can take an issue like the, the murder of preborn children and call it women's health. Lies. So blasphemy laws, they exist today. It's not that they don't exist today. They exist today, but they are the opposite of what they were in the theocracy of Israel. They seek to punish you for, the, for telling the truth. Right? Historically, though, that's not what blasphemy laws were. Blasphemy laws sought to punish those who slandered or lied about sacred things, namely the triune God. Now look back at the text with me. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. Okay, that, that word translated here as assuredly is the Greek equivalent of, of saying Amen. And Jesus is saying amen here, and, and amen, when we say that, it means it's true. It means truth, right? To, to say it is to agree with, in, 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 in strong terms with whatever it is that's being said, okay? So before Jesus says, quote, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter, Jesus says, this is true or truth. In other words, we need to pay attention even more when we see a phrase like assuredly come up. It's as if Jesus is saying, please hear me on this. Okay, Jesus is making clear up front that all sins will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies men utter. And, and, and remember, blasphemies may have been crimes in the theocracy of Israel, as I was referencing a moment ago, but Jesus is saying that he, even that isn't unforgivable. 
It's not unforgivable. There may be an earthly consequence. There was an earthly consequence for it in the theocracy of Israel. It's not unforgivable. And then the passage continues. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Okay, so the reason Jesus adds this is because of the religious leaders attributing the miracles and the exorcisms and the pronouncements of forgiveness to Satan instead of the Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus did these works by the power of the Spirit and not by the power of the devil. Okay? Yet these religious leaders, they were attributing them to the devil. And, and here is where we need to see what's going on. Okay? Christ is giving a warning here. Okay, these religious leaders were dangerously close to crossing a line. Their hearts were hardening more and more against the Spirit of God as Jesus demonstrated more and more of the Spirit's power in his life. Right? What should have been softening was actually hardening here. Now, Matthew's gospel can help us. In chapter 12 of Matthew, verses 31 to 32, we, say, we see Jesus say, this is Matthew's account of it, Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone, and get this, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So pay particular attention to verse 32 there, because I think, that's the key to interpreting this whole thing. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. What I think is happening is, G is that Jesus is saying it's one thing to speak these blasphemies in his first advent. Right? It's one thing to, to say these things in his first advent, in his first coming, right? Christ became man. He came from Nazareth. Does anything good come out of Nazareth, right? He humbled himself. And we have evidence of people as well. And this helps strengthen what Jesus is and isn't saying. But we have evidence that people in Christ's earthly ministry at this stage in the game, they denounced him, right? So in Christ's first advent, he was announced even by his own disciples, right? Peter strongly denounced Jesus at the time of Jesus's arrest, Yet Peter did not commit the unforgivable sin. Right? He was restored by Jesus even though he denounced Jesus, John 21, verses 15 to 17. So what is the unforgivable sin in reference to? And I, I think that this sin is in reference to Jesus' exalted state. It's an eternal sin to intentionally harden your heart against our triune God and slander the Spirit of God by your rejection of who he exalts to you, which is Christ. That's, in fact, the primary role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to exalt Christ to us, right? To testify to us about who Christ is. That's what Jesus says in John 16, verses 13 to 15. He says, however, when he, speaking the spirit of truth, has come, right? And when does he come? When does the spirit of truth come in the way in which we know him to come, right? He comes in Christ's exalted state, right? After his ascension, in his glorified state. 
says, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you thing, the things to come. He will glorify me, right? He will glorify Christ, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Right? The role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the exalted, glorious Christ, to take of what is Christ's and declare it to you and to me, and to defy that, okay, to reject that, to harden your heart toward that, and declare that our triune God is accursed, is to be in an unconverted state, right? Is to be in an unconverted state. At this stage, even the religious leaders hadn't committed the unforgivable sin. Neither did those uh, who crucified Jesus, right? It was Jesus that prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? Luke chapter 23, verse 34. But to reject Christ in his glorious, exalted, ascended, right hand of God state, right? Knowing, in fact, that he has fulfilled scripture and to persevere in that, is to commit this unpardonable sin. The theologian Novation, who lived between the years of 200 to the year 258, said that contempt of the Holy Spirit, okay, blasphemes of the Holy Spirit, is defiance of the ground of the Christian faith in life, for it's the Spirit who offers testimony to Christ. Right, another commentator says, no one who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit can imagine saying anathema, which is, a curse of damnation. You can imagine saying anathema to Jesus. No one in the spirit would deny that Christ is the son of God or reject God as creator. No believer would utter such things contrary to scripture or substitute alien or sacrilegious ordinances contrary to moral principles. The Pharisees had not as yet done this, but in charging Jesus with being in league with hell, they were displacing, displaying beforehand a malignant determination to shut their eyes to all evidence and so bordering upon and in spirit committing the unpardonable sin. So it's this willing, hard-hearted rejection, again, of our triune God and the salvation that he's provided for us exclusively in Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you're worried that you may have committed the unforgivable sin, hear me, you haven't committed the sin. Right? Nobody who has committed this sin is worried that they've committed it. Right? Nobody that's committed this sin is worried that they've committed it. Your nervousness, your anxiousness, it's a sign of the Spirit's work in your very life. It's a sign of your sensitivity before God. Right? And it's here that we take comfort in the words of Jesus yet again, going back to verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. Right? That's our second point proven this morning. Right? No sin is unforgivable for those who turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. And in doing so, we should follow the call of the preacher to the Hebrews when he quoted Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, thank you for this time in your word together, Lord. We ask that it would encourage and comfort us, God. Help us to see more clearly, God, because we're so prone to not seeing things clearly. And God, we're so grateful for your spirit 
who exalts to us the glorified Christ. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the portion of our service where we come to the Lord's table. And if you are a guest with us, we don't require a membership for you to be able to partake in the Lord's Supper. What we ask is that you are a baptized Christian who is uh, confessing sin, repenting of sin, and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And so if that is you this morning, uh, we welcome you to the table. If that is not you this morning, we ask that you would just remain seated because this is a meal for God's people in which Christ is spiritually present with us. And as we'll read in our devotional this morning, is spiritually nourishing us and knitting us in Christ. And so, elders, if you want to go ahead and, and come down and church family, you can go ahead and stand up and begin to make your way. And as you take the elements, we will remind you that Christ is for you.